0: One verse of scripture here kind of stood out uh, to me. Uh, You know, we, uh, as we continue to hear all the stuff with the war over in Israel and all this stuff, and uh, I I surely want everyone to know that, you know, my heart goes out to anybody that's involved in any of that stuff, Uh, having a... having uh, to live around a place. I mean, that that Middle East that just always at war, always constantly under that, and to live underneath that uh, with the constant fear of, of, of fighting and wars and bombs and, you know, military action and all that kind of stuff. I could only imagine, you know, how thankful I am that the Lord is. Even though as bad as America is, uh... And everything we still are really blessed to be able to live here where we don't really see that kind of skirmishes uh, all the time here and uh, and we do have quite the freedom uh, still to some degree here in the United States um, even though we have a very tyrannical uh, government uh, and a a lot of uh, sinfulness and wickedness has uh, has really ramped up in our country, but uh, still we, we, we're we blessed to not have to live in, in the condition that a lot of people have to live in and <clears throat> but thinking about everything that's going on and again I'm very sensitive to what's happening and I, I hate it that people are dying and all the killing that's going on during these wars um, but as we objectively have to look at some of these things and especially as it pertains to Christianity, it pertains to uh, church. As it pertains to the Word of God, uh, we must always look at things as the Bible, as Scripture uh, uh, dictates. Uh, I guess I should say teaches us. And uh, you know, I see. I was noticing that yesterday we, uh, when we were watching some of the football games, there was a bunch of ads um, sporadically about the supporting Israel and, uh, putting up the blue square and all this kind of stuff on your social media, showing that your support for Israel and, uh, all of that. And, um, uh, a lot of discussions are going on. of course, I, you know, I preached a few weeks ago on the Israel, the biblical view of Israel, um. And, you know, I think that a lot of times we as preachers and and as churches, as we discuss these types of things and everything, we need to keep that in the forefront, you know, some of the things that goes on in our society and what's going on in the world, that a lot of times we need to, uh, uh, you know, discuss those things. For the most part, I I try to keep a lot of politics and a lot of stuff out of, you know, whenever I preach to just preach the word. Uh, you know, preach the gospel. Let let this be our center focus. Christ be our center focus. But uh, a lot of times, and, and that's as a preacher. Now, the pastor side of things, uh, a lot of times we have to deal with, uh, you know, what happens in our society, what's going on in our government, what's going on in our towns, you know, what we're seeing, uh, the atrocities that goes on with these wars and wars any kind of false teachings, you know, if there's new, newfangled things that's come up, sometimes people start having questions about that. And I get asked, especially at work, uh, people that know that I'm a preacher, they're always wanting me to give my opinion on, what do you think about the end times with all this that's going on with Israel? And what's your thought about, you know, the, the uh, you think the Antichrist is coming on the scene? All these things that are pertaining to this uh, eschatology that has come from uh, uh, the 1800s through uh, Darby and uh, Ryrie and uh, uh, Schofield and uh, uh, the Plymouth Brethren and the Dispensationalists uh, and everything today. And, and a lot of times whenever I give them my, you know, most of the time I don't even give them my opinion. I just say, well, the Bible says this about that. The Bible says this about that. And. And they immediately don't want to hear what the Bible says. They want to know, you know, so you're saying that you don't believe in this or that. I said, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that's what the Bible is saying. Uh, I'm not saying one thing or the other. And most of the time, it's not what they want to hear. Because it, it, it's not what they've been taught and what's been ingrained in us for years and years and years and years of uh, false teaching that we've been under uh, most of us at least have been under false teachings most of our lives and uh, a lot of times some of these things you know as they're talking about it in the newspaper theology and eschatology uh, a lot of what is talked about is oh my all the wars and rumors of wars and all these nations coming against Israel and uh they've got the red heifer in the waiting and they've already got the plans drawn up for the new tabernacle and and professing Christians are excited about this uh, excited about this new tabernacle being built Uh, they're going to reinstitute these sacrifices and of course you got that with all these Christians who have been influenced by dispensational teaching uh Then on the other hand, you have the the people who are within the Hebrew Roots movement who believe that we're still under the Old Testament and uh, the Old Covenant and uh, all the ceremonial and uh, things of the Old Testament and everything. And they're looking at all these feasts and festivals and all this kind of stuff and and the rebuilding of the tabernacle and the institution of sacrifices. And that's exciting their base, you know. But what does the Bible say about that? That's... That's really what matters, is what does God's Word say about that. And one thing I, I, I have learned from Scripture, and, and it's very clear, especially if you read through the book of Hebrews, you know that the Old Covenant has been done away with. It's gone, folks. It's done. There is no more Old Covenant. That Old Covenant was only for a time and for a purpose, and it's gone away. The Old Covenant was set there with its types and shadows. And the scripture is very clear that these things was just a type or was just a, a foreshadowing. It was a picture of things that was to come. It's fulfillment. The fulfillment of all those things throughout the Old Testament found that fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. Not only in him as his person, but in all that he did in his work. Uh, That was the fulfillment of everything in there. And the new covenant that we are under is not a new covenant that is still working with the old covenant. Hebrews is very clear that this old covenant has gone away, that it is no longer in, uh, in action. Now with that being said, everything under the old covenant... Has been done away with and is no more active. And one of the things is those covenant blessings promised to physical Israel, the sacrifices, the tabernacle worship, the ministry of the of the of the uh, uh, tabernacle. All those things was part of the old covenant. And if Hebrews is clear that those things have now gone away, then they are no longer going to. Be active. We're not to be looking for that. Why? Why are we not to look for those to be reinstated? Because Christ was the one who all those were talking about. And the substance of everything that that shadow was pointing to has now come and fulfilled the purpose for everything that those promises and everything was pointing to. Christ came and has fulfilled that. Therefore, the types and foreshadows are no longer needed. We don't need to have tabernacles, sacrifices. We don't need to have all the ceremonial things, the priestly garments, the red heifers, the ashes, the blood of bulls and goats. We do not have to have that because everything that those were typifying has been fully Shown and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my thoughts was, whenever I was reading through this portion of Scripture, one of the things is, is this institution, uh, re-instituting of the tabernacle, and this reinstituting of the sacrifices. Now in my opinion, and I think that the Bible can back me up on this, or my opinion is in accord with the Bible, I probably should say, is that any kind of bull and goat sacrifice in any future date, whether it's now or whether it's in thousand years or whether it's somewhere on down the line, to me that is a slap in the face, a spit in the face. It's blasphemy before the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. You're saying we are looking for the type, the shadow, when the fulfillment is right there on the throne before us. We're looking for something that has been given to point us to the substance and the fulfillment, but yet here the fulfillment has fulfilled it all, but you want to return and you're rejecting him and wanting the types and shadows. I mean, um, Hebrews is very clear... That, uh, that he is not interested in, in the uh, sacrifices of bulls and goats. That these are things that have gone away, uh, that uh, they are no longer needed, and that they are no longer uh, things that uh, the Lord requires. But if you would look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and I want us to look at this tabernacle thing, we'll probably talk about some more of this stuff that I've been talking about, but I want us to look at a few things. <clears throat> now you've heard me mention before, And anything that you guys want to add to this or or correct or rebuke and and stuff, I'm, I'm I'm open to it. But as I see and understand the scripture on this, there is a physical and there is a spiritual. We've talked about this a lot of times. The Bible talks about physical things, but the physical things are always there to give us and point us to the spiritual realities. Just as though Adam was a physical man, it pointed to the spiritual man, Christ Jesus. Just as Israel was a physical nation, it points to the true spiritual Israel, which is the elect of God out of every nation. Just as though there are types and foreshadows in the Old Testament of things, of the ordinances and the tabernacle and the (coughs) Ark of the Covenant and the priestly garments and the and all the things that was involved in the service, uh, the, even the wandering in the wilderness, and Pharaoh, and Egypt, and the Red Sea, the manna, the rock that was, uh, that was uh, hewn, uh, uh, the stone that was uh, hewn out of the rock, all these things, while they were physical things, are all there to teach and to, and to speak to a greater spiritual reality. And in the New Testament, we see that as Christians, as the people of God, that we are to uh, look and we are to deal with uh, and look for the spiritual. And that takes precedence over those things which are physical. And I believe that's part of understanding eschatology as well. We, We have to get past the physical... And, I, you know, I, hear, I heard this all my life, uh, growing up under a premillennial uh, eschatology, is that we have to take the Bible literal, you know. Well, there are places where you do take the Bible literal, okay? But we also, to, to take the Bible literal does not mean that in every case you take it in a wooden literal sense, you have to take it in the sense that it was intended. So for me to take the Bible literal, if it is speaking of something physical, then I interpret it in a physical way. If it's talking about something spiritual, we interpret it in a spiritual way. If it's talking about something historical, we, talk, we interpret it in a historical way. And so whenever we look at the Scripture and we see things that are being talked about in a typified way then it's for us to pray that the Spirit would give us understanding of what is that spiritual application to what we're seeing in the physical. If we stop at the physical, we're going to miss what the true spiritual reality is being taught and what the goodness is in all of this. Particularly, and probably paramount, is we're going to miss Christ. Because a lot of times in eschatology especially, we, we are not dwelling on Christ, but on all the literal interpretations of everything surrounding Christ, like the Antichrist, like the man of sin, like the two witnesses, like the plagues, like the vials, like the tribulation, like the thousand year reign, like all, all these things we are hyper-focused on on all this stuff, and now we're opening up our newspapers, we're watching the news, trying to figure out how all this is tying together, and we've missed the complete and total purpose for which that book at the end of our Bible was written, and that was to reveal Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. But so is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Hebrews... Every book in this Bible is written as a revelation of Jesus Christ. The epistles that were written to the churches for instruction on the worship was to focus and to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we get our eyes on tabernacles and heifers and altars and people, and take it off of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are going to miss the beautiful picture that God has given us in His Word declaring who Christ is. Not to mention that we begin to exalt the things of the creation more than the Creator. We begin to exalt man over the Son of Man. So, in Hebrews chapter eight. We see this. It says, "I'm going to start at verse one." Sorry, guys. I've got a hair sticking in my eye. It's bothering me. Maybe stuck to my glasses. It says, "Now of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum." Now, what have we seen up to this point in Hebrews? Well, the first seven chapters of Hebrews is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Christ being revealed as the high priest. Christ being revealed in his manhood. Christ being revealed as our substitute. Christ being revealed as better than Moses. Christ being revealed as the mediator of a better covenant. We see these things leading up to chapter 8 and he says this. Now of these things which we have spoken... This is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Of everything that could ever be revealed and talked about, Jesus Christ, one thing is for sure, and the sum of all of it, is this. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ Christ is Lord. He is God. There is only one throne in heaven. There's not three thrones. There's not twenty thrones or twelve thrones or fifteen thrones. There's not 144,000 thrones. There is one throne in heaven. And there is only one who sits on that throne. And the Bible is very clear that the one who sits on the throne is the Lamb. The one who sits on the throne is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who sits on the throne is the only one who has immortality. The one who sits on the throne is the one into whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. The one who sits on the throne is the image of the invisible God. Made visible the man, Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. He is God in flesh. He is God revealed. And that revealing of God sitting on that throne means that he and he alone not only has immortality, but he and he alone has the right over all. He has the right to do with, to dispose of. He has the right to say and to do whatever He wants to do because He is sovereign. That's what being on a throne means. If I am king, I have to say so over all my subjects. If I am the creator, I have to say so in whatever it is that I create and what its function and use is. If I am the Lord... That means I have complete and total domination and control over everything of every part of everyone's lives, whether it be beast, animal, or any other living thing. I have control over it. He is the prophet, he is the priest, he is the king, he is the creator, he is all things that is divine, he is all things that is holy. This is the one who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What does that mean to sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven? Does that mean that there is a big throne with an invisible God sitting on it and a little throne with the man Jesus Christ sitting on it looking up at Big Daddy saying, Alright, what do you want me to do? No, it means the right hand is the one who has the power. The right hand of the king is someone who has the power. My boss says this all the time. Whenever we go in and, and, and we're introducing ourselves to a new client or we're going in and doing a demo of all of our equipment. My boss is the president, CEO, owner, and he handles all the sales, all the office stuff, uh, and, and, and the dealings with uh, ordering equipment and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the service side of things, installing and, and uh, repairing and training on how it does—that—that's my job. That's what I do. Okay. Uh, now he helps me on the installs as well, but that's—that's that's mostly what I do, right? He comes in, and a lot of times he'll introduce me. This is Michael Smith. He's my right-hand man. Well, what does that mean? I'm just always right there beside him. No, he's saying this is the man who I have entrusted everything in my company. As far as it pertains to your installation of equipment, your training of equipment, and your repair of your equipment, this is the guy. He's got all the power to do whatever it takes and whatever is needed to do whatever it is needs to be done with this x-ray stuff. The right hand of my boss. Jesus is said to be the right hand of God, meaning that he is the one who has been given authority and has been given a. Power to do whatever the will of God is. And he does that in earth and in heaven. He's been given power over all flesh to give eternal life. He's been given power over all flesh to give eternal death. He's been given power over all flesh to do with as he sees fit in accordance to the purpose and will of God. Jesus Christ is the one, and I believe, and and, and again, uh, this is how I understand the typology and the symbolism of the revelation, that Jesus is the one who sits on that throne and has been given that scroll and is the only one who has the authority to take that scroll and to open up that scroll and that scroll being signified as the complete and total purpose of God the will of God, all things that God has decreed from the foundation of the world until the end of time and everything past that that we may not even know is going to take place, Christ is the only one that has been given authority and power to break the seals of that document, to roll it out and by providence bring it into existence and being and control it by his mighty power. He is the one at the right hand of God doing it. Meaning that he is the authority. He is the power. He is the magistrate. He is the one who is conducting it all. He is the author of providence. He is the controller of providence. He is the consummation of the providence of God. That is who we see set at the high, as the high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And the scripture says that this is the sum of everything that has been said before. And brethren, I would say that this is the sum of everything that will be said afterwards. The sum of all things is Jesus Christ is the center of everything. If this has anything to do with God, Jesus is at the center of it because He makes God known. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the prize of God. He is the promise of God. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Him everything that there is to be known of God and to be worshipped about God is in Christ Jesus. If there's anything to have to do with anything about God, it has to be tied and part of Jesus Christ. And if you look in Scripture, you can't find where that is separated into... Three distinct persons that they each get their individual praise because you can't praise the Father without praising Jesus Christ. You can't praise the Word without praising Jesus Christ. You can't praise the Holy Spirit without praising Jesus Christ because those are in Christ Jesus. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Word of God and He is the comforting Spirit that is being sent to His people and residing in His people that indwells them. Jesus is the embodiment of all of the Godhead and He is the one who is the the fulfillment of everything that God has spoken. So if it has anything to do about God, it all is focused upon Jesus Christ. People like to try to separate them things out as far as it can. I don't know how, how it is, but all I know of this is the Bible speaks more of that unity than it does of its segregation. God is one God. And whether it's Father, Word, Holy Spirit, we know that that is found and manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. For now and all eternity. I mean, when we get to heaven, we're not going to see anything but Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, anybody that did see an image of God, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up. It was Jesus Christ, according to John. He is the majesty that is on high. So look at verse 2. It says that this majesty that is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, he is the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man so that tells me that there is a sanctuary and a tabernacle that is a true sanctuary and a true tabernacle that is not pitched by man so that means it's not something built over in the Middle East. It's not something built by anybody on this earth. It's not the tabernacle of the Old Covenant. It's not the sanctuary of the Old Covenant. It says here that Christ Jesus is a minister of a sanctuary and a tabernacle that is not from man. Now that word pitched there, you don't hear that real often anymore, unless you're a redneck like us. Where do we use the word pitched? What do you think of whenever I say pitched? Pitched the, pitch the tent, right? We pitch a tent. Well, that's actually what this is talking about, is pitching a tent. That's what the word tabernacle means, is a tent. Pitching a tent, what does that mean? Setting up, forming or building a tent. So what does it say here? Jesus is a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord formed or set up and not man. Brother, why are we looking for a man-made tabernacle? Why are we looking for a man made sanctuary? Well, the, the sanctuary was that outer part where all the service was being done, right? That was the court where all the service work of the smaller priests were all working. But the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle where God dwelt, right? We look throughout all the Old Testament and you see that the uh, before the tabernacle of Solomon was built, whenever they were wandering, well, I take that back, I was corrected of that this week and I take that correction. They were not wandering in the wilderness, they were being led in the wilderness um, by Christ. As they were being led through the wilderness, that tent that was set up, God came and dwelt in that tent. So are we to look for the physical whenever we're talking about these things? You know that that earthly tabernacle and all that was about it was actually a type and a picture of the true heavenly tabernacle that God had already set up in heaven. Hebrews even tells that that what he gives Moses in very descriptive detail on how to construct this thing was the picture of the tabernacle that was in heaven. That's in... uh, That's in chapter 9, I believe. Verse 23. It says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here we see that the, that the uh, holy places that Christ entered into is not the holy places made with hands. Those were only figures of the true. So there is a true tabernacle There is a true sanctuary that is not made with hands. It's spiritual. There's a spiritual application here that God give us a physical thing to teach us of the spiritual thing. That's what I was trying to teach back when we were talking about Israel. Whenever we say there is a true Israel and everybody says, well, you guys keep saying true Israel and... Israel is a nation. It's the ethnic thing. It's always the physical. It's always the physical. No, it's not. There is a true Israel of God. And Paul makes that clear. Now, in Hebrews, he says it right here. There is a true tabernacle. Not a physical tabernacle, but a true tabernacle. Or I should say a a spiritual. It's not a physical, but a spiritual tabernacle. Because I do believe that the tabernacle that's being spoken of here is actually a physical thing. Uh, but it, it, it's a spiritual physical thing. And I'll explain that here in a minute. Um, but anyway, Paul uses true tabernacle here. Now, he doesn't say true Israel. But yet he does teach that whenever he says, not all that are of Israel are Israel. That means that there is a Israel that is the real Israel. And there are those who profess to be Israel that are not really of Israel. So that means there's an Israel within Israel that is the true Israel. He also said, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, but one which is one inwardly. So the outward Jew is one who professes to be Jews, but are not Jews. The Jew is one who has been circumcised in heart. So there's a true Jew. The true meaning of Jew is not the one who has been circumcised in the flesh, but the one who has been circumcised in the heart by God himself, which is only the elect of God from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's the true Jew. So if we want to talk about the true part of anything, whether it be a Jew, whether it be a uh, Israel, or whether it be a Jerusalem, or whether it be a tabernacle or a sanctuary. We're talking about the spiritual fulfillment of these things, not the physical. And so he says here, a minister of the sanctuary. Well, who's the sanctuary? Well, turn with me, if you would, over to Psalms 114. I think the Lord gives us a little insight into this. Psalms one hundred and fourteen, verse two. Now again, remembering back what I not only that I taught about Israel and Jerusalem and uh, Judah and things like that in the message a few weeks ago, but what I just said just, just now, we're looking at the spiritual through the types, right? We're looking at the physical types, but we're gleaning out of it the spiritual. Verse 1, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his Sanctuary and Israel, his dominion. Judah was his sanctuary. Judah was where he resided. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from the people of a strange language, Judah was his sanctuary. Now, look with me if you would at Isaiah 63. He says, O Lord, why hast Thou made us to err from Thy ways and harden our heart from Thy fear? Just a side note, by the way. (laughs) Who made those people err? For all the limited predestinarians out there. Uh, He says... Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. So here he, can, he compares his people to his sanctuary. Now the sanctuary was the place in where the Lord dwelt with his people. We know the Bible says that I will be a God unto them. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell with them. (laughs) The sanctuary of God is his people. So whenever we're talking here that he is a minister of the sanctuary, the true sanctuary, that means that God is the minister of Among His people. He's the one who ministers amongst His people. His work of service in that ministry is within His people. Not a physical building that's going to be rebuilt somewhere with an outer court where He's going to be ministering or other people are going to be set up to minister for Him while He's sitting there watching on. It says that He is the minister of the sanctuary not the priests that are getting themselves all ready together to reinstate all this stuff. He's going to be the minister of this true sanctuary. And the true sanctuary is not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is a people. He is dwelling in them and ministering among them. Jesus said of the, of the church as it's gathered, did he not say where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be also with them? He is going to dwell among them. He dwells within our heart. What did He say about the Holy Spirit that he, of His that He would send. He said, I will be their God. I will dwell with them. I will be in them. He is dwelling in us. We are the sanctuary, the true sanctuary of God. But it says here, He's also the minister of the true tabernacle. Now who's... What's the tabernacle represent? What's the spiritual look of the tabernacle? We know it's not physical because it's not pitched by man. Well, I would hold that the tabernacle is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and specifically His manhood. Look with me, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 Now this is a a quote uh, Matter of fact, I'm, I'm just going to read from verse 1 because there's some things in here that's pertinent to what we've been talking about It says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So my question, and I there's a man that was on our uh, church uh, Facebook page commenting on some things yesterday uh, saying that all this stuff about Israel and everything, we need to keep looking back through the Old Testament and that, you know, that uh, uh, that the sacrifices are about to be reinstated and that there was a need for those and all this kind of stuff and as I've been conversing with this gentleman one of the things that i pointed out is that why would whether it's wherever you want to put that built tabernacle wherever you want to put that reinstitution of sacrifices whether it's before the thousand years in the thousand years or after the thousand years wherever you want to put that What is the purpose of it? Why would you reinstate that whenever the fulfillment is here? Why would you reinstate something that the Scriptures is clear that those sacrifices offered year by year cannot make anyone perfect? But it goes on even more than that. Not only can it not make them perfect, because whenever I mentioned that, he said, yeah, but it's there to set up for forgiveness. For our consciousness, as we come and we offer those sacrifices, we know that we are being forgiven. We'll look at verse two. For then would they not have ceased to be offered if they were to make them perfect? Then they, they if it would have made them perfect, then they would have went away eventually, as everybody made their sacrifices. If that made them perfect, there's no need for sacrifice anymore. If you're made perfect, right? Because there's no more sin. But there was continual sin, therefore the sacrifices went on and on and on and on and on, therefore showing that the sacrifices did nothing as far as making people perfect. But look at verse 2, the second part, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more consciousness of sin. So those sacrifices, not only did it not make them perfect, it couldn't clear their conscience either because it was an ever-living reminder of how sinful they were. (laughs) The sacrifices didn't help my conscience. Oh, I've made my sacrifice to God. No, brethren, every time those people brought that sacrifice, they came in shame because, again, here I am, priest, with my sacrifice, because I am a sinner. We think that everybody just troll a lot up to the priest. Here's my weekly sacrifice. Here's my monthly sacrifice. Here's my yearly sacrifice for all the sins that I may have committed like some blanket prayers that we often pray. Lord, just whatever it is that I've done, forgive me of it. Some blanket sacrifice. No, brethren, listen. That bloody sacrificial system was a constant reminder, not only to those people, but to those priests who were offering those sacrifices and getting themselves drenched in blood around the smell of blood and the grossness of all the slaughtering day in and day out, year in, year out. It was a constant reminder, we cannot keep God's laws and we cannot please God by doing these things. That is a constant reminder. So, brethren, this reinstitution of a tabernacle and a sanctuary and a, uh, uh offering service to God by bulls and goats or whatever is not pleasing to God. It's not benefiting you in any way. It is not making you right with God, acceptable for God, or going to clear your conscience. And if you have been made perfect and there is no more sin, whatever time frame you want to put this tabernacle in, if there is no more sin, if there is no more uh, need for sacrifice, which there is, by the way, because of Jesus, but if you have been made perfect then there is no more need for sacrifice. So what's the purpose of the sacrifice? Why would Jesus want to sit there and see that all the time? There's no need for it. There's no want of it. And there's no application for it. He says, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible... It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world. Now, wherefore, he's linking what he's talking about here, about this sin issue and these sacrifice things, right? He's linking that together. Wherefore, in light of what I just said, when he cometh into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. Now that Jesus has come in the flesh in His mediatorial work, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared Me. See, it's no more about bulls and goats, but it's about the body of Jesus Christ. (laughs) It is about the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the one time eternal sacrifice of God for His people, the only thing that can remove sin, the only thing that can clear the conscience, the only thing that can make us acceptable before God, and the only sacrifice that God will accept. And that is that. And He is the true tabernacle. And in that true tabernacle, that flesh... That body that God prepared for him, he once for all made the sacrifice. He did the service of the priest. He offered the blood unto God. It was accepted of God. And therefore it has made all of the people that he shed that blood for perfect. And he has obtained eternal redemption for them. There is no need for anything else. Why would you go back to the shadow pointing to that that was insufficient in and of itself, and give that to worship for God instead of just worshiping the One who did it by Himself. For Himself. It's crazy. It's asinine. It's its, it's blasphemy. In my view, it's blasphemy to Christ To drag up those bulls and goats when God has clearly said, I do not desire that. That will not do anything for me. It will not do anything for you. It was there to point and to remind you of your sinfulness and it was to show you of what the true sacrifice really was. So that body was prepared. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure... Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said sacrifice and offerings, and burnt offerings, and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are of, uh, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, this tabernacle, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. Didn't our passage a while ago just say we have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God? And he is a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle? How is Christ ministering to the sanctuary and being the minister of the true tabernacle? By sitting at the right hand of God with authority and power. He is interceding for us. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. The fact that He is sitting there on the throne is the intercession. The intercession that He has completed all that is needed for sin. All that is needed for redemption. All that is needed for acceptance before God and justification. He has sanctified his people and that he has redeemed his people and that he has done everything and he has set down. God has, God was pleased with it all. God accepted it all. It was what God required and Christ fulfilled it all. The fulfillment of everything that old covenant, uh, could not do, Christ did. Everything that that new covenant, uh, promised, Christ gives us. By what He did. He is the fulfillment of everything old, everything new. He is the center point of it all. That is why He is in the middle of the throne. That's why He is the center point of all of what we preach, what we teach, and as we interpret Scripture, put forth and look for is Christ. Not buildings and nations and things like that. Heifers. Look with me if you would at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood, right? That through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil. So here we see that Jesus took on uh, verse 16. The very nature, or for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So we see that he has taken on uh, this body that God has prepared for him, and it is a body made like unto his brethren. Not the same as his brethren. It's flesh and blood, but it is without sin. See we have flesh and blood and we have sin. But Christ Jesus does not have a nature of sin. We do. So yes, He is made likened to His brethren. Flesh and blood was needed to be that sacrifice. The body had to be broke. The blood had to be shed. He had to have flesh and blood. Likened to His brethren, but not with sin. In Revelation chapter 21, we read this. <coughs> Verse 3 it said, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he Will dwell with them. Can't believe that's talking not about a physical building, but about Christ. The tabernacle of God is with men. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that He dwelt among us, right? That word there means to tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. Matter of fact, I just thought this. I didn't even wasn't even thinking about this in my in my scriptures that I wrote down. Didn't Jesus say, tear down this tabernacle? And in three days I will raise it up again? He wasn't talking about the big building, although that did eventually be tore down as as prophesied. But he was talking about his body. He was talking about his body that God had prepared for him. He said Tear this down, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He was talking about his body. But here it says, here, I have heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Christ is tabernacle, is dwelling with his people. It's not a physical thing as in a building but in a person. Christ Jesus. That's the spiritual implication. That's the spiritual application. Is Christ and His person as the man Jesus Christ. God is dwelling with us and in us by His Spirit by His body. He is of the minister of all that we need. We are His sanctuary. The place in which He dwells In which he ministers the things of God. Now go back to Ezekiel, if you would, and I'm just, I think I'm going to wrap it up with this. Probably convoluted as much as I can. Pray that the Spirit's made clear some of the things that were in my mind. In Ezekiel 37, I think this wraps everything back up in the (laughs) sanctuary that we began with. In Ezekiel chapter 37, look with me down at verse 27. Or excuse me, verse um, I am going to read down to that, but where did I want to start here? Verse 24. And David, my servant, and of course we know David is a type of Christ, right? I don't think anybody would argue that point. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. Hmm. The New Testament also says that Jesus is the great shepherd, right? And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Wow. We shall. We shall. We shall. It doesn't say we might or we we should. It says we shall walk in his judgments and observe my statutes. Doesn't the Bible say that it is God who works in you both to will and to do? And something I noticed, I might have mentioned this to you before, but I noticed something recently in that verse. It says that, For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do, and it says, of His good pleasure, not just to will and to do His good pleasure. See, some people will look at that and say, that God works in us to will and to do His good pleasure, meaning whatever He tells us to do in His word. But it says to will and to do of His good pleasure. Meaning God is working in us whatever He pleases. He works our will and He works our working for His pleasure. Whatever it is, His pleasure is. Didn't the Bible say that I will do all my pleasure? Anyway, he goes on. He says, "And they shall dwell in the land that I will have given unto uh, my servant unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. and They shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and that shall be an everlasting covenant with them." And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My dwelling place. In the midst of them. See, they are the dwelling place for this prince, for this king. My tabernacle also shall be with them. So God's dwelling place is going to be the tabernacle amongst his people. The sanctuary. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And look at verse 18. I think this is what might tie it all back together before we started. And the heathen shall know that I the Lord do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. See, the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do set Israel apart, sanctify Israel, with my sanctuary, where my dwelling, where my presence shall be in the midst of them forevermore. He's promised to be our God and to dwell with us forevermore. Matter of fact, in Romans, whenever he's actually telling the physical Israel, the physical Jews, he said, listen, The fact that I am going to dwell among the Gentiles, the elect out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, that's going to be to show you and to bring jealousy into your heart because I am dwelling there. You thought I was just going to dwell amongst your tents, among your buildings, but that was just a a typology. It was just a symbol. It was just a shadow To show forth the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which is Jesus Christ dwelling among His elect from every tribe, language, nation, people. That's the true dwelling of God with man. That's where I will be. I will be in the midst of my people. I will be in the midst of the church. I will be in the midst of my brethren. I will be in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. I will minister in the sanctuary of God, which is my people. I will minister in them. And is he not our teacher? Is he not our comforter? Is he not our uh, uh, convictor? Is he not our uh, 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 convincer of sin? Is he not everything that we have need of? The one who brings us joy, who brings us all the spiritual gifts that God has given. Isn't Jesus Christ the one who is the one ministering those things in us? He is ministering in the sanctuary, which is his people. And the one that is doing that is the tabernacle of God, the man Jesus Christ. So brethren, again, let's look past these literal, physical Things that the Bible teaches and see Christ at the center of everything and its spiritual fulfillment. And who Christ is for His people. It's not something for some Middle Eastern or country, nation over there. That was just a type to show us the true, broader fulfillment of all of God's elect. Listen, what does that mean? That means Christ isn't just bound to the United States or to Israel or to this No, He stretches and is has his elect in every corner of the world. One of these days, they're all going to be gathered up from every corner of the world. But praise God that we have the minister of the new covenant dwelling among his people now. It's not some time thing way down the, down the road. Is it going to be great whenever we physically get to see Jesus Christ and we physically get to be in His presence with those physical new bodies that we have? Spiritual bodies, but they will be real, literal spiritual bodies. Is it going to be great? Yes, but listen, let's not overlook the fact that He has promised His presence here. Right now where we are gathered together, two or three gathered in His name under His authority as His church, He has promised His presence with us. I pray He's been here. I pray He's been ministering to your heart. I pray He's been ministering to mine. I hope that He is he has worked in us and ministered in this sanctuary today. Not this sanctuary, this building, but the sanctuary of who we are as His elect, as His gathered people, as the lively stones that make up this building, that makes up this city, that makes up this bride. I pray that He's ministered among us. Alright, does anybody have anything that you'd like to add? or Any questions, comments, or corrections, or rebukes? It may have a different look on that. Maybe I have it off a little bit. Everything. I hope that I've been in accordance with the scripture and the meaning of it. <coughs> anybody? <coughs> Alright. Let's bow and we'll have a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you once again and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we never can say enough about Him. We never can preach enough about Him. We thank you for the Word of God that has revealed Him to us. We thank you for the new covenant which is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the minister of that new covenant which is Christ Jesus. Father, we just are uh, needy people and not only do we need revelation of what you have written to us, but Father, we need you in us, to lift our hearts to worship, to honor, to magnify, to glorify uh, you for who you are. We need you to show us the things of these uh, passages that you have not revealed to the world, but you have revealed unto babes, unto your people. And Father, we need the Holy Spirit to continually be with us, to comfort us, to give us peace, especially in the times that we are uh, living, that you have us in now, Lord. Uh, may you keep your people. May you comfort them. May you give them peace. Again, we want to lift up and pray for uh, Sister uh, Rosette and her family and, and Brother Larry and all them and all their relatives and the passing of their relatives and for um, Brother Bradley and the passing of his son uh, and everything. We want to remember them. Uh, and the family, Lord, that you would give them peace and that you would give them comfort. Uh, Father, we pray that if any of them be your children, Lord, that you have received them unto yourself. Uh, Lord, we just also pray that you just might continue to minister among us as we leave this place. Be with us this week. Uh, again, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity to be together once again today. Uh, and uh, thank you for it. And it's all in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.